You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome to our very exciting episode of Teller from Jerusalem. As Israel stood at the edge of achieving statehood, the perspective for the new state was not rosy. Britain was clearly opposed to partition, and so were the Arab countries and most of the Asian nations. As the views of the others were not clear, the American position was a factor of paramount importance. The State Department, chiefly General Marshall, and Defense Department Secretary James Forrestal were very, very opposed to a Jewish state. Truman wrote in his diary that the U.S.'s military leaders were primarily concerned about Middle East oil and fears that Arabs antagonized by Western action in Palestine would make common cause with Russia. The Zionist executive, working against time, set out to win the support of the nations, big and small, which were soon to decide the fate of Palestine. It was an uphill task, above all because the American position at this stage was not, as historian Walter LeCour labeled it, helpful. Much to the surprise of the Zionists, the Soviet attitude was much more positive. Gromyko, or to be a tad more formal, Andrei Alendrenevich Gromyko, who was the Soviet permanent representative to the United Nations in New York at that time, had been dubbed by Western pundits as Mr. Nyet, meaning Mr. No, or Grim Gram, Grim Gromyko, because of his frequent use of the Soviet veto in the United Nations Security Council. Gromyko spoke at the UN about the aspirations towards Palestine of a considerable, considerable part of the Jewish people, of the calamities and suffering they had undergone in the last war, which defy description, and the grave conditions in which the masses of Jewish population find themselves after the war. This unexpected Soviet support continued through 1947, when traditionally the Soviet attitude to Zionism has been extremely hostile. All of us have heard of Prisoners of Zion, and Moscow reverted to its earlier position after 1948, not long after the State of Israel came into being. One can only conclude that the short-lived rapprochement happened at exactly the right moment for the Zionists. Without it, they would not have stood a chance. But as we often do in this podcast, let us examine the Soviet motives, for no one assumes that the Russians ever meant what they said, or actually really had a bleeding heart. As Walter Lacour explains, the Soviet aim was to diminish Western influence in the Mediterranean and advance its own interests in the power vacuum that would be followed after the Western and British withdrawal. Going into the vote, Israel had a majority, but not two-thirds which was necessary. The reason for this was that although the Soviet Union had made good on its promise to bring along its satellite countries, and it was able to dictate its will, the United States made a policy decision that it would not coerce any of its allies to support. The United Nations delegation was under the direct influence of the State Department that was very opposed to partition, and they would do nothing for it. They were upset with President Truman's decision to vote for it against their advice. On November 25th, the incomparable Chaim Weizmann reached out twice to Truman and explained that if the United States does not put its weight behind the decision, the vote will probably go the wrong way, and the issue could be shelved, possibly forever. Truman was under enormous pressure on this issue from both sides, but decided to go with his morally dictated conscience 
and sent a message to the UN delegation that, quote, you're to get all the necessary votes, and if you do not, there will be hell to pay. A clearer message was never issued by Give Him Hell Harry. Uh, in a later episode, we'll analyze if there were other motives of President Truman. Countries that required the United States for support, like Haiti and the Philippines, quickly fell into line so that when the vote took place, that was monitored by people listening on radios all across the world and writing down and keeping track of the tally, the plan for partition of Palestine that would afford a Jewish state, there was a two-thirds majority. So let's listen to three brief clips about this crucial make-it-or-break-it vote for the Jewish state beginning with the history of Israel explained. Because of the conflict between the Arabs, Jews, and the occupying British, by 1947, ruling Palestine had become a royal pain for the United Kingdom. So in 1947, they told the UN, you guys deal with it. And the UN Special Committee on Palestine, or UNSCOP, was formed. But the Balfour Declaration of 1917 had created an important precedent, a promise that the Jews would receive land and that both sides would have rights. This was taken into account when deciding how to divide the land. The main option proposed by the Special Committee on Palestine was similar to the Peel Commission's proposal to create two states, a Jewish one and an Arab one, while the UN would retain control over Jerusalem. The Jewish representatives from Palestine okayed this option, while the Arab leaders rejected it. But there still had to be a vote. This was a huge deal for Jews around the world. This vote would decide if they, as a people, could return to their homeland. It would indicate if the international community respected the rights of Jews. Zionist leadership lobbied for it to succeed. This was their big make-it-or-break-it moment. In the eyes of the Jews, this lobbying arose from their desire to reclaim their home and their hopes to rebuild after the Holocaust. But to Arabs, the lobbying was seen as a U.S.-backed strong-arm move. On November 29, 1947, it was time to vote. Jews around the world rushed to their radios so they wouldn't miss hearing the broadcast. They sat transfixed, listening as their fates were once again chosen for them. Each country's vote, announced on the UN floor, felt like it was either a cause for celebration or a blow to the entire Jewish people. Jews waited with bated breath to see if the resolution would pass. At last, the final count was in. At Flushing, Long Island, the General Assembly of the United Nations has made its decision on Palestine. There was heated debate in the assembly. This is the delegate from Saudi Arabia arguing against partition. Then, Senor Arana of Brazil, presiding, calls on the nations to vote and announces how they vote. Saudi Arabia? No. Soviet Union? Yes. United Kingdom? Abstain. The United States? Yes. The resolution of the Duck Committee for Palestine was adopted by 33 votes, 13 against, 10 abstentions. And this was the scene next day in Jerusalem. The Jewish people at once began to celebrate the United Nations decision. If they hadn't got all they wanted, they had at least gained the verdict for the setting up of a new Jewish state, and their rejoicing was obviously a spontaneous affair. Such was the immediate Jewish reaction in Jerusalem, and it was the same in Tel Aviv and elsewhere. The Arab reaction was to follow. Two days later, this was the typical scene. Arabs advancing on the center of Jerusalem at the beginning of a three-day strike and an orgy of wrecking, looting, and bloodshed. Isolated police were more or less powerless to deal with the riot, which beginning as a demonstration, quickly led to the burning of Jewish shops and the general destruction of Jewish property. The implementing of the United Nations decision is the big query. 
Meanwhile, Britain announces the ending of her mandate next May. Here is former Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu commemorating the 70th anniversary of this vote. Warm greetings from Jerusalem to all of you gathered in the actual hall where the UN voted on partition in 1947. This was a truly historic decision. Now close your eyes for a moment and imagine the electricity in the air during that vote. In Israel, people were glued to their radios and then broke out dancing in the streets. Uh, this was a prelude to Israel's rebirth as an independent nation. The vote in the end was 33 in favor, 13 against, and 10 abstentions. Wherever people listened when the vote was over, not just in Palestine, but in Jewish areas all over the world, such as Brooklyn, for example, people went out into the street and started dancing. Traffic stopped in Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv, and people danced into the streets into the early hours of the morning. Chief Rabbi Isaac Herzog declared, after a darkness of 2,000 years, the dawn of redemption has broken. This reaction was way different than the Arab states. In the United Nations, they all walked out and declared that the vote illegal, and in Palestine it was flatly rejected. Just a few hours after the announcement, as Jews were still reveling, an Arab gang in Jaffa ambushed a Jewish bus murdering five and wounding many, many others. That very same Arab gang continued north along the coast, and when they arrived at Khadera, they opened up on a bus and murdered two more. This reaction should not be understood to be that of only the hotheads. The next day, December 1st, the Arab High Higher Committee sided on a three-day strike to protest the creation of a Jewish state in a part of the world that the Jews had, quote, no right to. I don't quite get What's, what right they have to say that Jews have no right to the land of Israel. Not long after, on the next day, December 2nd, a large gang from the Old City marched to the Jewish section on Rehov Yafo on Jaffa Street. They torched stores, looted everything, and injured whomever they could, leaving desolation in their wake. At that point, Chaim Weizmann, summing up the situation to a Jewish group that he was addressing in Atlantic City, New Jersey, said, quote, a state is not given to a people on a silver platter, meaning the United Nations made their decision, but they were not going to impose it upon the Arabs. So the Jews of Palestine and others were going to have to fight for it to bring it about. As historian Daniel Gordas points out, nothing better expressed the Yushu's sense of anticipation of the state they were fighting for than the poem The Silver Platter by Nathan Alterman. Alterman was born in Warsaw in 1920 and moved with his family to Palestine in 1925. By 1941, he was recognized as one of the leading poetic voices in the Yishuv. He gradually assumed by Alex's role as poet laureate of the Zionist movement. He wrote The Silver Platter, but a month after the vote in the UN for partition, and shortly after Weizmann's comment that a state is not given to a people on a silver platter. Alterman analogized the nation waiting for statehood to the biblical Jewish people waiting to receive the Torah and the revelation at Mount Sinai. The Yishuv was also waiting, as they anticipated a boy and a girl. The only characters in the poem walk silently towards the assembled throngs. The nation watches awestruck, as the young man and woman, caked in dirt and blood, ask them who they are. We, they respond, are the silver platter upon which the Jewish state has been given to you. Thereupon they collapse, and the poem ends. 
the Jewish settlement, the Yishuv, began a hurried preparation for war. The Haganah, the Jewish defense forces, still not legal, divided into four brigades, and those with experience from World War II were put in charge. Even the 50,000 that had been caught trying to enter Palestine by ship and were interred in Cyprus were mostly able-bodied. The Haganah was desperate to train them so they could join the forces and when they'd be able to come to Palestine. Under Haganah instruction, they began training on broomsticks and on 70 mock rifles carpenters fashioned from wood. There had been sporadic Arab terror, but now that the vote was taken and the British were to leave, the Arabs launched attacks with more earnest. The Haganah was by no means as well equipped and trained a fighting detachment as was commonly believed. Its forces and equipment were sufficient to cope with a civil war, but they were inadequate to defend the Yishuv against regular armies. Britain continued to supply arms to neighboring Arab countries, and America had declared an arms embargo, making it very difficult for the Jewish forces to acquire supplies. The day after the UN vote, Arabs opened fire on, ambulance, on an ambulance on its way to Adassa Hospital, and no one was injured. Later that day, Arabs using hand grenades and machine guns attacked the bus traveling from Netanya to Jerusalem. Five Jewish passengers were murdered, including a young Jewish woman on her way to her very own wedding. The first phase of the five months that would lead up to the War of Independence were now underway. Ben-Gurion insisted that his forces not give up territory, even in the face of attack. For the most part, they held on. But the most significant and now iconic loss was that of the four settlements that formed the Etzion Bloc in the Hebron Hills south of Jerusalem. In the first weeks of 1948, the settlements were besieged, led by Abdul Qadir al-Husseini, the Mufti's cousin, and with also over 1,000 Arab villagers surrounded the few hundred Jewish men in the Etzion block. The Jews were poorly armed, and Arab women joined the siege with suitcases which they were dreamed to fill up with the booty of the Jews. On January 14, the Jewish defenders managed to repel an attack and killed 150 Arab villagers. They had used a significant portion of their meager ammunition, and the siege continued. Two days later, a relief column set out for the Etzion Bloc, consisting of 35 men. Many of them were the very brightest of Hebrew University students. They were supposed to set out at 9 p.m., but they were delayed because of the weapons had not yet arrived in time for the 40 recruits for this mission. I confess there is a cons- inconsistency I said 35, and then I tell you 45 left. As we shall explain, it started with 40 and ended up with 35. They're waiting to depart, and then the commander realized that two of the men, two of the men did not have rifles. He ordered those two, those two to remain behind. They were only ready to leave at 11.15, and because their only approach was by foot, the road was fully controlled by Husseini's fighters, they wondered if they should leave that night or wait till the next day and because if they were to leave at night, they would not arrive under the cover of darkness. On the other hand, the commander feared that the Etzion bloc, known in Hebrew as Gush Etzion, may fall that day, and, would be, and he would therefore, how would he be able to justify that he did not come to their rescue because their weapons arrived late? They set off on this very difficult trek. The recruits were carrying very, very heavy backpacks, full of supplies, and one soldier tripped on a rock and sprained his right ankle. As he could not continue, the commander ordered two soldiers to escort him back to the set-off point. 
Those soldiers were frightened to head back by themselves and felt that they would be much safer with the platoon, but they could not violate an order. Because they left later than planned, they lost the cover of darkness and did not have a radio or means of communication. The convoy never reached Etzion. According to one account, they met an Arab shepherd on the way. They could either kill him or risk him revealing their whereabouts. He swore that he would not reveal anything. A second account that emerged decades later is that Arab women out scavenging for firewood saw the Palmach fighters and went back to their village and the Jews decided not to shoot them. These women sounded the alarm in their village. Either way, the 35 Israeli students, who were also members of the Palmach, had their cover blown, and they were ambushed by Arab fighters commanding the heights and covered by stone fortifications. They ran down upon the machine gun fire, destroying this relief mission before they could even get their supplies to the Etzion block. They were killed, and their bodies were mutilated beyond recognition. The Etzion block eventually fell to the Jordanian Legion one day before the state of Israel was declared. Most of those who surrendered were then murdered by the Arab soldiers. Here again, we turn to summarize these events to the excellent History of Israel Explained series. Israel's War of Independence did not begin when the British left Palestine in May 1948. That may sound a little odd because that is in fact when the independent state of Israel was declared and when the surrounding Arab nations responded by invading the new nation. But that's really too late of a date for the war's starting point. We need to go back to a date five and a half months earlier, November 29th, 1947, when the UN voted to partition the mandate for Palestine into two states, one Jewish and one Arab. While the Zionist leaders accepted the results and agreed to form a Jewish state when the British left, the Arabs emphatically rejected the vote and vowed to drive the Jews into the sea. Violence broke out right away. During this pre-independence period, there was extensive fighting between the Haganah and the Irgun, the primary Jewish military organizations during the period of the British Mandate, and both local Arabs and the Arab Legion, Jordan's British trained army. This didn't so much resemble a war between nations as it did a sort of civil war, drawn on ethnic and religious lines between the Jewish and Arab residents of Palestine. This was really the first phase of the war before the entire region was engulfed in an interstate conflict in May 1948. During this period, one of the conflict zones was a group of four Jewish kibbutzim south of Jerusalem known collectively as Gush Etzion. These agricultural villages in the hills of Judea were originally founded on land purchased by the Jews in the 1920s and 30s. The Arab riots of 1929 and the Arab revolt of 1936 through 39 wiped out these communities, but that didn't stop Jews from returning to their land and rebuilding their settlements during the early 1940s. As a result of the UN vote of November 29, 1947, the four settlements wound up located in territory allocated to the Arab state. These settlements guarded the approach to Jerusalem from Hebron, giving them strategic importance, but at the same time were vulnerable to attack because they were surrounded by Arab villages. Gush Etzion immediately came under siege from Arab forces. During the next 47 days, relief convoys were ambushed amid intense fighting. In January, women and children were evacuated with the help of the British. Then, on January 14th, the Arabs launched a major assault on the settlements. They brought 300 to 400 men to simultaneously attack each community, outnumbering the Jewish defenders by a ratio of about 8 to 1. The Arabs were so confident in their victory that they brought hundreds of bags with them to haul away the Jewish property they planned to loot. Defying all odds, the defenders from the Palmach, the elite fighters of the Haganah, repelled this assault. A Palmach sniper stopped the Arab leader in his tracks, startling the mob behind him. Then, wave after wave of Arab attackers was met by ambush and fell back in disarray. 
By nightfall at Kfar Etzion, about 30 Jewish fighters had held off 400 attackers. At the other settlements, there was a similar result, with Palmach defenders bluffing the Arabs into thinking that they were far more numerous than they actually were, and frightening them into retreating, leaving about 150 of their dead behind. The defenders of Etzion lost three of their own. Although the military victory was extraordinary, the fighting left the defenders of Gush Etzion without supplies or ammunition. Time was on the Arab side, as they controlled all of the roads linking Etzion to Jerusalem and could simply wait while the communities exhausted their resources. Something had to be done, quickly. The Etzion communities had survived more or less intact so far, but how long could they continue to hold out? The Haganah couldn't use an armored convoy to bring in supplies, because earlier motorized convoys had been attacked. So they decided to send out a group of 38 men on foot the very next day under the leadership of Danny Mass, former commander of the Etzion communities. The remainder of the unit was comprised of members of the Haganah, many of them students at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. It was a cold Thursday night, about 11 p.m. on January 15, 1948. The group set out on a footpath that would avoid both Arab villages and British police posts, all while ascending and descending the difficult slopes of the Judean hills. Now, this was no easy task. Each man carried 100 pounds of supplies on his back. They would also have to walk very quietly throughout the night and yet somehow still arrive at the kibbutzim before daybreak. And there was an early mishap. One man sprained an ankle and two other were needed to escort him back to Jerusalem. That left only 35. Although the group was able to trek unnoticed in the darkness, they could not keep schedule. It was already sunrise an hour before they arrived to the Gush Etzion communities. While the details of what happened next are not entirely clear, we do know that the unit ran into one or two Arab civilians, either an old shepherd or two women who were gathering firewood and began screaming at the sight of the Jewish scouts. Now, this put the 35 Jews in a tough spot. Letting the Arabs go would risk the mission and threaten all of their lives, but the only alternative would be to kill them. Now, years earlier, in the face of numerous attacks by Arabs against Jewish settlements, the Haganah had adopted a policy known as Havlaga, or restraint. This approach dictated that Jews abstain from taking revenge against Arab civilians. Later, this developed into a formal military policy known as purity of arms. Jews would defend themselves when necessary, but not allow their weapons to be stained with the blood of innocents. In the words of the IDF's code, the soldier will maintain his humanity even in combat, and shall not employ his weaponry and power in order to harm non-combatants or prisoners of war. Now, we can't know what those Haganah soldiers were thinking on that cold morning of January 15, 1948. According to the initial report that they stumbled upon an old shepherd, the soldiers swore him to silence and let him go. According to the more accepted account that two women discovered the unit, the Jewish soldiers did not fire at them or capture them. Either way, the story ends the same. The Arab civilians reported what they had seen. Hundreds of Arab soldiers and villagers streamed to the area, surrounding the 35 Jewish soldiers. The fighting that ensued raged all day long. By 4.30 p.m., the Jewish fighters had run out of ammunition, and the last of the 35 had been killed. After the battle, the victorious Arabs mutilated the corpse of the Jews, so much so that many could never be positively identified. The account of what happened and the disfigured remains of the Jewish soldiers might never have been uncovered had the British not seen wounded Arabs arriving in Hebron and subsequently pressured Arab leaders to give them access to the field of battle. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit telefromjerusalem.com 
you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com. 